0: Welcome, Earthlings, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We're glad to have you aboard for this mystery. The underlying question being, are we alone? And if not, how long have we known about it? No matter which side of the question you stand on, you're going to get a chance to sift through some very interesting information as we move forward with this episode. We'll explore the story that very likely inspired Steven Spielberg's 1977 blockbuster movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind and learn how that movie got its name. We'll find out who is talking about it today and share recent news regarding the existence of top-secret U.S. government space programs. We'll also provide you with an incredible story that came from an anonymous source who is very close to the Roswell Area 51 story involving the U.S. government's alleged rescuing of a downed alien whose craft had crashed in a thunderstorm in New Mexico, and the information that this alien, who was from a very advanced culture, shared, which led to the creation of an exchange program years afterward during the Kennedy administration that allowed 12 U.S. astronauts with individual scientific knowledge and talents to travel to a planet 40 light-years away to gather information, and then, as the plan went, to return with the knowledge. Those 12 astronauts, 10 men and 2 women, according to this story, all single, with their backgrounds sheep-dipped and carrying new identities, were portrayed in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, wearing orange suits and entering a large craft near Devil's Peak, Wyoming, ready to head into the unknown. Spielberg said that his inspiration for that scene was a dream that he had had. But that didn't explain the 20-page letter... Many say he received from the U.S. government when the movie aired. Many well-known people in UFO circles today believe that Spielberg had an inside track on classified information and that the U.S. government pressured him to find out who was leaking the information. Today, a few former government insiders have come forward to say that the exchange was indeed real and actually took place pretty much as depicted in the movie. Under the auspices of a defense intelligence program referred to as Operation Crystal Night, spelled K-N-I-G-H-T, which is now called Project Serpo. The story of the 12 astronauts who left this Earth in July of 1965 headed for planet Serpo in the constellation Zeta Reticuli aboard an alien spaceship was released to the world via the Internet using 21 emails which were released separately over a period of time from an individual referred to only as anonymous to a closed circle of high-level UFO insiders. The first message being received November 2nd, 2005. After the group had had time to fact-check the information, to what extent they could, they replied back to Anonymous, who identified himself as the official spokesman for six DIA personnel, that's Defense Intelligence Agency personnel, three retired and three still working there and the group got his permission to publish a website which could house the information contained in the emails and any information as yet still not shared. Anonymous agreed to that request, and a researcher named Bill Ryan from the UK stepped up to create and maintain the website, which was and is named Serpo.org. This has become the source of all Serpo-related information, including updates from Ryan, a link to a public forum, and supporting emails from others who had knowledge of the SERPO project. The first thing you'll notice is that the website is straightforward. No alien music, no artwork or photos. The box at the top states, This site is intended to facilitate the gradual release of confidential documents pertaining to a top-secret exchange program of 12 U.S. military personnel to SERPO, a planet of Zeta Reticuli, between the years 1965 and 1978. Below that, you'll find updates, beginning with the most recent one in 2016, which contains an email thread asking detailed propulsion questions and getting answers from a person labeled as DIA Number 6. This might be an interesting dive for the engineers in our listening audience. However, most of the interesting data was provided in 2005 and 2006, Before Ryan left the website, at least for a number of years, he has come back. I think the most fascinating story is that of the 21 Serpo releases. You can take it either way. If it's all made up, it's a fantastic work of fiction. It's enjoyable. If it's true, or any part of it's true, it's an eye-opener. So settle in for a good listen, and I'll share the good parts. For the entire PDF, I'm leaving a link in the show notes. You will hear some names mentioned in the following story and the thread that's included from others who were allowed within the circle to respond. The names, places, and projects, Project Serpo, Zeta Reticuli, Victor Martinez, Linda Howe, Rick Doty, Paul McGovern, and The Grays. Who are they? First of all, let's start with Project Serpo. It's an alleged top-secret exchange program between the United States government and an alien planet called Serpo in the Zeta Reticuli star system, as previously mentioned. Details of the alleged exchange program have appeared in several UFO conspiracy stories, including one incident in 1983, in which a man identifying himself as U.S. Air Force Sergeant Richard C. Doty, D-O-T-Y, contacted investigative journalist Linda Moulton Howe claiming to be able to supply her Air Force records of the exchange for her HBO documentary, The E.T. Factor, only to pull out without providing any evidence to substantiate his story. And one incident in 2005 when a series of 21 emails were sent to a UFO discussion group run by Victor Martinez, claiming that the project was real. Zeta Reticuli has a history in ufology, including the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, and the Bob Lazar story, having been claimed as the home system of an alien race called the Greys. With all that in mind, here's the story, in part, from the beginning. First, let me introduce myself. My name is Anonymous. I am a retired employee of the U.S. government. I won't go into any great details about my past, but I was involved in a special program. As for Roswell, it occurred but not like the storybooks tell. There were two crash sites, one southwest of Corona, New Mexico, and the second site at Polona Peak, south of Daytail, New Mexico. The crash involved two extraterrestrial aircraft. The Corona site was found a day later by an archaeology team. This team reported the crash site to the Lincoln County Sheriff's Department. A deputy arrived the next day and summoned a state police officer. One live entity, later identified as EBE, was found hiding behind a rock. The entity was given water, but declined food. The entity was later transferred to Los Alamos. The information eventually went to Roswell Army Airfield. The site was examined, and all evidence was removed. The bodies were taken to Los Alamos National Laboratory because they had a freezing system that allowed the bodies to remain frozen for research. The craft was taken to Roswell and then on to Wright Field, Ohio. The second site was not discovered until August of 1949 by two ranchers. They reported their findings several days later to the Sheriff of Catron County, New Mexico. Because of the remote location, it took the Sheriff several days to make his way to the crash site. Once at the site, the Sheriff took photographs and then drove back to Dayton. Sandia Army Base, Albuquerque, New Mexico, was then notified. A recovery team from Sandia took custody of all evidence, including six bodies. The bodies were taken to Sandia Base, but later transferred to Los Alamos. The live entity established communications with us and provided us with a location of his home planet. The entity remained alive until 1952, when he died. But before his death, he provided us with a full explanation of the items found inside the two crafts. One item was a communication device. The entity was allowed to make contact with his planet. Somehow I never knew this information, but a meeting date was set for April 1964 near Alamogordo, New Mexico. The aliens landed and retrieved the bodies of their dead comrades. Information was exchanged. Communication was in English. The aliens had a translation device. In 1965, we had an exchange program with the aliens. We carefully selected 12 military personnel, 10 men and 2 women. They were trained, vetted, and carefully removed from the military system. The 12 were skilled in various specialties. Near the northern part of the Nevada test site, the aliens landed and the 12 Americans left. One entity was left on Earth. The original plan was for our 12 people to stay 10 years and then return to Earth. But something went wrong. The twelve remained until 1978, when they were returned to the same location in Nevada. Seven men and one woman returned. Two died on the alien's home planet. Four others decided to remain, according to the returnees. Of the eight that returned, all have died. The last survivor died in 2002. Twelve team members went, and eight returned, two having died on Serpo and two having chosen to remain. These two were not ordered to return. The returnees were isolated from 1978 until 1984 at various military installations. The Air Force Office of Special Investigation, AFOSI, was responsible for their security and safety. AFOSI also conducted debriefing sessions with the returnees. I have never seen or read anything about the exchange program. I once heard a little bit of information from Linda Howe, but she didn't have much information. I've monitored your emails for about six months. I've read emails from you and others, but I've never seen nor heard the truth about the real Roswell incident or the exchange program. I'd like to hear what others say about this. And here we join the thread at Ryan's website. Comment 1 by Gene Laskowski. Who is this person? Most of the information is absolutely correct. However, I never heard of any females going. To the best of my knowledge, we had 12 men, all military men, eight USAF, two Army, and two Navy guys. I think the females were a red herring, but maybe I just didn't have the clearance for that. They left and were gone 20 years, as I was told. When they came back, they were put in quarantine for 365 days at the complex. Only eight came back, that much is right. Two died a few years into their assignment on the visitor's planet. Two others decided to remain and maybe are still alive today. Since their return, all have died, the last being in 2003 in a VA hospital. As for the Roswell incident, whomever sent the email is correct. The complete debriefing is contained in Project Serpo, Final Report, 80HQD893. 020, classified TS code word. Paul McGovern should be commenting on this since he was involved in the debriefing. Clarification by Victor Martinez. And this thread entry by Paul McGovern. Interesting, but not totally correct. He's commenting on Anonymous' original email, not on this last one we just read. As for the Roswell incident, absolutely right. Few people have ever gotten it entirely correct. Two crash sites, not one. As for the exchange program, unauthorized release of classified information as I see it. But maybe someone currently within our government wants it out. No females were sent. Twelve men, all military, eight USAF, two U.S. Army and two U.S. Navy. Two were doctors, three were scientists, two were language specialists, two were security personnel, two were pilots, and one was the leader, Air Force colonel. All were sheep-dipped and completely erased from the military rolls. I'm not totally sure of the training period, but I think it was six months. They were able to transmit messages to Earth by means of a communication system set up prior to their trip. One doctor and one of the security personnel died three years into their visit. The doctor died of pneumonia, and the security guy died of an injury. The exchange team had to endure extreme hardship adjusting to the environment of the visitor's planet. The heat was extreme and took many years to adjust. The food was something of a problem because the human system had problems digesting it. The team took enough food for two years and rationed it another eight months, but eventually had to eat the visitors, ebens, alien's name, food. The ebens tried to create different foods, but few worked. The team was never isolated or restricted by the ebens. They could travel as they wished and see whatever they wanted to see. After about six years, the team moved to a northern portion of the Ebens planet, where the temperature was cooler and which contained ample vegetation. The Ebens built a small community for the U.S. team. The only major problem was time. Time was different on the Ebens planet. I don't think anyone ever figured it out. The Ebens had no clocks. They didn't judge or account for time as we did. The Ebens found our attempts to account for time strange. The Ebens were extremely disciplined in their daily lives. Each one of them worked on a schedule, which was not by a clock, but by the movement of their sun. Each little community had a large tower which filtered the sun through. When the sun was at a particular point on the tower, it meant the Ebens had to do a particular thing. There was never complete darkness on the planet. It got dim, but not dark. They had rest periods, but not like our sleep periods. They rested three times during their Sundays. Our team determined the entire work period was approximately 43 hours. They had three rest periods within that 43 hours. That's still about 14 hours straight. Couldn't get too many of our workers to do that. The Ebens also didn't have months or years. They did have life periods, as our team coined it. It was impossible to judge the Ebens' age, although our team did find graves. The population of their planet was about was about 650,000. There were small communities throughout the planet. There were underground rivers, which fed into open valleys. There was industry. But all of the food was grown, either in fields or in large buildings. They did have animals, different types, strange large beasts they used for work and other things. But no meat was eaten. The geological makeup of the planet was so much different than ours. Few mountains, no oceans some trees or something similar to trees, and no other civilization except the Ebens. Everyone looked the same initially to our team. But after some time, the team members learned to identify different Ebens by their voices. Although the Ebens couldn't speak English, they did make noises that our team members were able to translate into English. After five years, we had their language completely translated. The complete debriefing accounts run for about 3,000 pages. As for the Roswell incident, this was the story I read in the historical document called The Red Book, almost exactly to the word, although there were more details about the crash site and what was recovered. As for the exchange program, I read about it but thought there were 12 men. I don't recall any women, but that was about all I knew. We did have a special unit that handled their debriefing, but USAF Positive Intelligence was also involved. I was never involved in that program but I knew other agents who were. I'd like to contact this source. I have about a million questions to ask. I heard Linda Howe speak about the exchange program some years ago. I always wondered where she got her information. Keep up the excellent work. And now posting two by Anonymous. There were two females, one being a doctor and the other being a linguist. There was a period of darkness, but not total darkness. The Eben planet is located within a solar system of the Zeta Reticular star system, two fifth-magnitude yellow double stars, similar to our sun, located near the large Magellanic cloud. The planet had two suns, but their angles were small and allowed some darkness on the planet depending on one's location. Another bone of contention is that while Zeta Reticuli is indeed a double binary star, current astronomical observations show that it is a distant binary, with the two stars a tenth of a light year apart, some 350 billion miles. From the perspective of a planet orbiting one of the stars, the second sun would have appeared as just a bright speck in the sky. The planet was tilted, which allowed the northern part of the planet to be cooler. The planet was a little less than Earth's size. The atmosphere was similar to Earth's and contained the elements of CHON, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. Zeta Reticular is approximately 37 light years from us. It took our team, in an Eben craft, nine months to travel the distance. During the trip, each of our team members were frequently dizzy, disoriented, and suffered headaches. The craft did not go through any weightlessness during the trip. It was very large and allowed the team to exercise. Once the team arrived on the Eben planet, it took them several months to adjust to the atmosphere and during that adjustment period, they suffered headaches, dizziness, and disorientation. The bright suns of the Eben planet also presented problems. Although they had sunglasses, they still suffered from the bright sunlight and the danger of sun exposure. The radiation levels of the planet was a little higher than that of Earth. They were careful to cover their bodies at all times. The ebens had no forms of refrigeration, except in industry. The temperature of the planet at the center portion, stayed between 94 and 115 degrees. They did have clouds and rain, but not frequently. At the northern hemisphere of the planet, the temperature dropped to between 55 and 80 degrees. This was too cool for the Ebens, or at least most. Our team did find Ebens living in the north, but in very small villages. Our team eventually relocated to the north in order to stay cool. The ground transportation used by our team was similar to a helicopter. The power system was a sealed energy device that provided electrical power and lift for the craft. It was very easy to fly, and our pilots learned the system within days. The Evens did have vehicles which floated above the ground and did not have any tires or wheels. There were leaders, but no real form of government. There was virtually no crime seen by the team. They had an army which also acted as a police force, but no guns or weapons of any type were seen by our team. There were regular meetings within each small community. There was one large community which acted as a central point of the civilization. All the industry was at this one large community. There was no money. Every eban was issued what they needed. No stores, malls, or shopping locations. There were central distribution centers where Ebens went to obtain items of needs. All Ebens worked in some capacity. The children were kept very isolated. The only trouble our team members got into was when they attempted to photograph Eben children. The Army politely escorted them away and cautioned them not to do it again. Our scientists questioned our team members and the information they gathered. Our scientists could not understand how the orbit of Serpo could revolve around the two suns at the distance measured. In the end, our scientists found that some things relating to that particular system was different in physics compared to our system. There were some questions about how our team measured the orbit and other calculations based on the lack of stable time base. For some reason, and I don't think this was ever determined, our time instruments did not work on Serpo. Now, considering this You can understand the difficult job our team members had making calculations without time. They had to come up with an alternate method to measure speeds, orbits, etc. Challenge. Try solving a problem in physics without being able to measure time on Earth. So you see, our team did the best they could with the instruments they had and the hardships they developed attempting scientific calculations. It is difficult for any Earth-based scientist to understand the different physics in other solar systems, or on other planets. One of the questions sent me involved Kepler's law of planetary motion. Our team had that information. We had some of the best military scientists on the team. But if you consider Kepler's law, it requires time, and our team could only measure time in the conventional way. It was determined that Kepler's laws did not apply to that solar system. And at this point, the moderator makes a comment. This was Victor Martinez commenting. Johannes Kepler was a German astronomer and mathematician who lived 1571 to 1630. Kepler's discovery of Mars' elliptical orbit led to the publication in 1609 of three laws of planetary motion. The first law states that a planet moves on an elliptical path with the sun at one focus point. Second law states that a planet moves faster when closer to the sun and slower when further away. The third law makes it possible to calculate a planet's relative distance from the sun. Specifically, the law states that the cube of a planet's average distance from the sun is equal to the square of the time it takes that planet to complete its orbit. Conclusion, one of the things our Earth-based scientists learned was not to apply Earth's law of physics in a universal way. SERPA was estimated to be about 3 billion years old. The two suns were about 5 billion years old, but only by estimation. The Eben civilization was estimated to be about 10,000 years old. They evolved from another planet, not on Serpo. The original home planet of the Ebens was threatened with extreme volcanic activity. The Ebens had to relocate to Serbo in order to protect their civilization, and this occurred some 5,000 years ago. The Ebens had a great interplanetary battle with another race about 3,000 years ago, and they lost many thousands in that battle. The Ebens completely eliminated all their enemies. So this should give you an idea of the story that Anonymous provided, which is quite long and very detailed. We only just told a small portion. It will all drive you crazy because there's no corroboration anywhere, but there are accounts from real people who did have access to -to need-to-know classified material who have come forward to talk about it. The most notable being Canada's former Minister of Defense, Paul Hellyer, who was speaking to a crowd this past February 13th. And here's a portion of his presentation. The most fascinating story uh, that I'm going to
1: uh, tell, and it uh, takes a while, but for years I've heard rumors about an exchange between earthlings, more specifically Americans, with ETs. And uh, there's now finally some information on that uh, exchange, and what I'm, the story I'm going to tell you, I can't prove. And uh, well, somebody said, if you can't prove it, don't tell it. But In this business, if you had to prove everything you say, you wouldn't say anything. <laughs> so I've decided to say it for three reasons. First of all, it's an interesting story. Secondly, it's plausible, technically. It could have happened. Thirdly, my most reliable source told me that it was true. So most of you, I'm sure, saw the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, written and directed by Steven Spielberg, released in 1977. Alien spaceship lands in a high mesa called the Devil's Tower in a remote corner of Wyoming by pre-arrangement with the government. An ambassadorial exchange takes place. A single alien disembarks and is escorted away, presumably to a secret site somewhere. 12 American astronauts in orange jumpsuits and industrial strength sunglasses with duffel bags slung over their shoulders. 10 men, two women, March into the spacecraft to be whisked away to the alien home planet. In the previous scene, they had been given a blessing by a clergyman who referred to them as pilgrims. Was this just some inventive touch conceived by Spielberg, or did he base it on something real? Since it is now known that a prearranged alien landing did take place at her knee at or near Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico in April 64, it is not unreasonable to conclude that Spielberg may have had an inside track on classified information. That the ambassadorial exchange with an alien race may also have been a real event. In my opinion, another one of a long series of controlled leaks in order to put us a little more into the picture.
0: Now let's return to Close Encounters and producer Steven Spielberg for a moment. According to an article gleaned from news.co.uk, Spielberg had wanted to make an alien film since boyhood when he witnessed a meteor shower with his dad in New Jersey. He had written and directed the 1964 low-budget film Firelight at the age of 17, but it wasn't until Jaws and the fame and income that followed where he could really pursue a movie about UFOs. When Spielberg found the book Close Encounters by Dr. J. Allen Hynek, he knew he had the right guy for his story. I'm going to give you Hynek's background because his influence on Spielberg and the story behind the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind was immense. Josef Allen Hynek was an American astronomer, professor, and ufologist. He is perhaps best known and remembered for his UFO research. Hynek acted as scientific advisor to UFO studies undertaken by the U.S. Air Force under three consecutive projects. Project Sign, which stretched from 1947 to 1949. Project Grudge from 1949 to 1952. And Project Blue Book, 1952 to 1969. In later years, he conducted his own independent UFO research, developing the Close Encounter Classification System. He is widely considered the father of the concept of scientific analysis, both of reports and especially of trace evidence purportedly left by UFOs. Hynek was born in Chicago to Czech parents. In 1931, he received a B.S. from the University of Chicago. In 1935, he completed his Ph.D. in astrophysics at Yerkes Observatory. He joined the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Ohio State University in 1936. He specialized in the study of stellar evolution and the identification of spectroscopic binary stars. During World War II, Heinick was a civilian scientist at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, where he helped to develop the United States Navy's radio proximity fuse. After the war, Heineck returned to the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Ohio State, rising to full professor in 1950. In 1956, he left to join Professor Fred Whipple, the Harvard Astronomer, at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, which had combined with the Harvard Observatory at Harvard. Hynek had the assignment of directing the tracking of an American space satellite, a project for the International Geophysical Year in 1956 and thereafter. So you can see, this guy was no lightweight. In response to numerous reports of flying saucers, the United States Air Force established Project Sign in 1948 to examine sightings of unidentified flying objects. And at that time, Heineck was contacted to act as scientific consultant to Project Sign. He studied UFO reports and decided whether the phenomena described therein suggested known astronomical objects. When Project Sign hired Heineck, he was skeptical of UFO reports. Heineck suspected that they were made by unreliable witnesses or by persons who had misidentified man-made or natural objects. For the first few years of his UFO studies, Heineck could safely be described as a debunker. He thought that a great many UFOs could be explained as prosaic phenomena misidentified by an observer. In his 1977 book, Heineck admitted that he enjoyed his role as a debunker for the Air Force. He also noted that debunking was what the Air Force expected of him. Heineck's opinions about UFOs began a slow and gradual shift. After examining hundreds of UFO reports over the decades, including some made by credible witnesses, including astronomers, pilots, police officers, and military personnel, Hynek concluded that some reports represented genuine empirical evidence. Another shift in Hynek's opinions came after conducting an informal poll of his astronomer colleagues in the early 1950s. Among those he queried was Clyde Tombaugh, who discovered the dwarf planet Pluto. Of 44 astronomers, 5 over 11 percent had seen aerial objects that they could not account for with established mainstream science. Most of these astronomers had not widely shared their accounts for fear of ridicule or of damage to their reputations or careers. Tombaugh was an exception, having openly discussed his own UFO sightings. Heinick also noted that this 11 percent figure was according to most polls, greater than those in the general public who claimed to have seen UFOs. Furthermore, the astronomers were presumably more knowledgeable about observing and evaluating the skies than the general public, so their observations were arguably more impressive. Heinick was also distressed by what he regarded as the dismissive or arrogant attitude of many mainstream scientists toward UFO reports and witnesses. Early evidence of the shift in Hynek's opinions appeared in 1953 when Hynek wrote an article for the April 1953 issue of The Journal of the Optical Society of America, titled Unusual Aerial Phenomena, which contained what would become perhaps Hynek's best-known statement. Ridicule is not part of the scientific method, and people should not be taught that it is. The steady flow of reports, often made in concert by reliable observers, raises questions of scientific obligation and responsibility. Is there any residue that is worthy of scientific attention? Or, if there isn't, does not an obligation exist to say so to the public? Not in words of open ridicule, but seriously to keep faith with the trust the public places in science and scientists, he asks. When the UFO reports continued at a steady pace, Heineck devoted some time to studying the reports and determined that some were deeply puzzling, even after considerable study. He once said, As a scientist, I must be mindful of the lessons of the past, that matters of great value to science were overlooked because the new phenomenon did not fit the accepted scientific outlook of the time. In a 1985 interview, when asked what caused his change of opinion, Heineck responded, Two things, really. One was the completely negative and unyielding attitude of the Air Force. They wouldn't give UFOs the chance of existing, even if they were flying up and down the street in broad daylight. Everything had to have an explanation. I began to resent that, even though I basically felt the same way, because I still thought they weren't going about it in the right way. You can't assume that everything is black no matter what. Secondly, the caliber of the witnesses began to trouble me. Quite a few instances were reported by military pilots, for example, and I knew them to be fairly well trained. So this is when I first began to think that, well, maybe there was something to all this. Hynek remained with Project Sign after it became Project Grudge, though he was far less involved in Grudge than he had been in Sign. Project Grudge was replaced with Project Blue Book in early 1952, and Hynek remained a scientific consultant. Air Force Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, Blue Book's first director, held Hynek in high regard. Dr. Hynek was one of the most impressive scientists I met while working on the UFO project, and I met a good many. He didn't do two things that some of them did, give you the answer before he knew the question, or immediately begin to expound on his accomplishments in the field of science. Though Heineck thought Ruppelt was a capable director who steered Project Blue Book in the right direction, Ruppelt headed Blue Book for only a few years. Heineck has also stated his opinion that after Ruppelt's departure, Project Blue Book was little more than a public relations exercise, further noting that little or no research was undertaken using the scientific method. Heineck began occasionally disagreeing publicly with the conclusions of Blue Book. By the early 1960s, after about a decade and a half of study, Clark writes that Hynek's apparent turnaround on the UFO question was an open secret. Only after Blue Book was formally dissolved did Hynek speak more openly about his turnaround. By his own admission, the soft-spoken Hynek was cautious and conservative by nature. He speculated that his personality was a factor in the Air Force keeping him on as a consultant for over two decades. It was during the late stages of Blue Book in the 1960s that Heineck began speaking openly about his disagreements and disappointments with the Air Force. Among the cases about which he openly dissented with the Air Force were the highly publicized Portage County UFO Chase, in which several police officers chased a UFO for half an hour, and the encounter of Lonnie Zamora, a police officer who reported an encounter with a metallic egg-shaped aircraft near Socorro, New Mexico. The Lani Zamora incident was an alleged UFO close encounter which occurred on Friday, April 24, 1964, at about 5.50 p.m. on the outskirts of Socorro, New Mexico. Several primary witnesses emerged to report their version of the event, which included the craft's approach, conspicuous flame, and alleged physical evidence left behind immediately afterward. Lonnie Zamora, a Socorro police officer who was on duty at the time, claimed to have come closest to the object and provided the most prolonged and comprehensive account. Some physical trace evidence left behind. Burned vegetation and soil, ground landing impressions, and metal scrapings on a broken rock in one of the impressions was subsequently observed and analyzed by investigators for the military, law enforcement, and civilian UFO groups. That event, the Lonnie Zamora event, and its body of evidence is sometimes deemed one of the best documented and most perplexing UFO reports. It was immediately investigated by the U.S. Army, U.S. Air Force, and FBI and received considerable coverage in the mass media. After extensive investigation, the Air Force's Project Blue Book was unable to come up with a conventional explanation and listed the case as an unknown. We're telling the Lonnie Zamora story now at 1001 Stories for the Road, one of our three podcast shows, which is found at our new app, 1001 Stories Network, at iTunes and all major podcast host sites, and at www.1001storiesfortheroad.com, where you'll find the links. In a paper presented to the Joint Symposium of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics in L.A. in 1975, he wrote, If you object, I ask you to explain, quantitatively, not qualitatively, the reported phenomena of materialization and dematerialization of shape changes, of the noiseless hovering in the Earth's gravitational field, accelerations that, for an appreciable mass, require energy sources far beyond present capabilities, even theoretical capabilities, the well-known and often-reported E-M, electromagnetic interference effect. The psychic effects on participants, including purported telepathic communications. How do you explain these? Now that was in 1975, and if you saw the movie Close Encounters, you'll know that an entire community was affected telepathically with the message that something was coming and they needed to be there to meet it so you're starting to see how much of an effect Heineck did have on the making of that movie. I hold it entirely possible, he said, that a technology exists which encompasses both the physical and the psychic, the material and the mental. There are stars that are millions of years older than the sun. There there may be a civilization that is millions of years more advanced than man's. We have gone from Kitty Hawk to the moon in some 70 years, but it's possible that a million-year-old civilization may know something we don't. The psychic realms, so mysterious to us today, may be an ordinary part of an advanced technology. Heinick was later brought in as a key consultant to Columbia Pictures and Steven Spielberg for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, as previously mentioned, named after a level of Hynek's scale. And this interesting tidbit, he made a non-speaking cameo appearance in the film. At the end of the film, after the aliens disembarked from the mother ship, he can be seen, bearded and with pipe in mouth, stepping forward to view the spectacle. So if you're going to pick up the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, make sure you look for that. There are always going to be detractors and disbelievers. It's just part of human nature. You have probably told someone in your life, that to become a believer in UFOs, you would need to actually be lifted up into an alien spacecraft, have a conversation with the occupants, take a few pictures, maybe selfies with the crew, and ask for a take-home souvenir on the way out. Then, of course, once they flew out of sight, you're left as the only witness. The souvenir you were handed in the bag was your camera you had left behind, and there were no pictures to be found on the camera when you checked later and to avoid ridicule from all your pals at the bar, you were never able to share the story. Getting back to the movie, there have been a few books written about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the movie, which came out the same year as the first Star Trek, Star Trek being the number two most profitable movie ever made. Close Encounters was originally titled Watch the Skies and involved a military officer working on Project Blue Book who became a whistleblower on a government cover-up Involving aliens. A number of rewrites later, including one from taxi driver's Paul Schrader titled Kingdom Come, Close Encounters of the Third Kind finally emerged. The title, as spoken, came from Dr. Heinet's own alien encounter classification system, which is, starting with, a close encounter of the first kind means visual sightings of an unidentified flying object seemingly less than 500 feet away that show an appreciable angular extension and considerable detail. Close encounters of the second kind describe a UFO event in which a physical effect is alleged. This can be interference in the functioning of a vehicle or electronic device, animals reacting, a physiological effect such as paralysis or heat or discomfort in the witness, or some physical trace like impressions in the ground, scorched or otherwise affected vegetation, or a chemical trace and Close Encounters of the Third Kind are described as UFO encounters in which an animated creature is present. These include humanoids, robots, and humans who seem to be occupants or pilots of a UFO. According to people involved in the casting for the movie, the director first offered the part of Roy Neary to Steve McQueen, who turned it down because he couldn't cry on cue. And then it was turned down by Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Gene Hackman, and James Caan, until Spielberg found the right combination with Richard Dreyfuss, who had played the Woods Hole biologist in Jaws. Spielberg wanted to shoot in real suburban locations rather than studio backlots, but the production had trouble finding a hangar big enough that didn't have center supports. He needed a wide runway for the UFO. They finally located an out-of-use hangar that had been used for dirigibles during World War II at Brookley Air Force Base in Mobile, Alabama. The Neary's house was located at 1613 Carlisle Drive East in Mobile and was purchased for $35,000 at the time and later sold for $50,000. Composer John Williams worked with Spielberg to create the five-note musical theme before shooting began, chosen from a myriad of combinations. Anyone who has seen the movie can recite those notes still today. They go like this. I might be be a little off, but I think that's close. In the story, the ground crew communicates with the alien ship using this tone and variations of this tone to indicate that the area is safe and secure for the exchange of passengers. And that was the point where previously missing U.S. airmen and civilians disembarked and the 12 U.S. voyagers walked aboard for their trip to the unknown. The aliens, shown as the large crew aboard the craft, were actually young elementary school girls from Mobile wearing special gray suits and masks. One of my favorite UFO supporters is astronaut Dr. Edgar Mitchell, who is an outspoken witness and believer in UFO phenomenon. When questioned about the alleged Project Serpo, where an exchange took place with a number of aliens staying here and a group of carefully chosen NASA astronauts going off to another world, he said that he had heard about this and could not say it wasn't true. On the Roswell incident, Dr. Mitchell said that his family lived in the area and knew all the people involved, and had no doubt whatsoever that a spacecraft did crash there in 1947. He was also very positive in his response to one interview question about whether any bodies were actually found, replying, There were four aliens found, three dead, and one that lived on for some months. Upon research, you can easily find a number of astronauts, high-ranking military officials, ex-intelligence people, heads of state, and NASA scientists who support the theory that we are not alone. In a past episode titled Astronauts and Aliens at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries podcast, we covered a number of stories regarding astronauts who were not afraid to speak up about what they had seen. Personally, I believe that if this tiny dot in the solar system can support life, there are bound to be others. If you watch the development of the human race just in the past 100 years, you can see huge progress in terms of advancements in science and technology. Also, I trust the reports from police and military and astronauts who stand to gain nothing and possibly lose respect in their professional community by filing accurate reports of what they've seen with regard to unidentified objects and paranormal occurrences. I believe the days in which so many people doubt the existence of life forms outside our known world are numbered, and that piece by piece and year by year we can accept the fact that we're not alone and use peaceful means to benefit from shared technologies without having to use top-secret means to not only hide what our governments know from the public, but to purposely spread and distort the truth to discredit the few people who do step forward to try to enlighten the rest of us. All these actions accomplish is the creation of countless conspiracy theories. Humankind, in my opinion, is ready for the truth. Thanks for sharing this time with us today, 1001 Heroes. Well, everyone, that wraps up two episodes covering unexplained phenomena, which, with regard to the still-ongoing cattle mutilations and the story of the Roswell cover-up and Project Serpo, leaves you pretty well-informed and hopefully open-minded regarding the existence of other civilizations and the distinct possibility that they have been and are visiting us here on Earth. Don't forget to tune into 1001 Stories for the Road to hear the story of police officer Lonnie Zamora and his close encounter in Socorro, New Mexico. It's a great story. I want to extend a big thank you to those of you who are joining us as premium members. I hope you're enjoying full access to our deep archives at all three shows and that our new app, 1001 Stories Network, is making listening easy for you. I've been adding bonus episodes and I see you've been finding them. I really enjoyed the first Sherlock Holmes story and I hope you did as well. We're asking all of you who appreciate the work that it takes to create these shows, shows that inform, entertain, educate, and enlighten. To become subscribers to our show for only two ninety nine a month, the link is in the show notes here and at www. one thousand one stories dot com, our home web page. It's the best way to say thank you for the three years we've been doing the one thousand one podcast, and guarantee another three years of storytelling and historical sketches. I have so many ideas piled up and buried as notes all around this office here in Virginia Beach, where I do these shows, that you wouldn't believe it. With regard to actually subscribing to things I like, it's like pulling teeth, I'll admit, so I can understand why only a small percentage of people do it for little independent projects like mine especially. I'm not Netflix. I did try one of those audio book services once, but it took 14 hours to get through one book, and I was finding that I just didn't have the time. Some listeners have told me they enjoy our shows because they're generally around an hour or less, and that's fine with them. And they write great reviews at iTunes telling me they love our content, the choice of subject matter, the variety of stories, the fact that our content is clean, the human drama, the unknown histories, the people we cover, and the way we tell stories. Not everyone can do this and hold on to and grow audiences for years. In three years now, we have received, counting all our 1,001 shows, over 15 million listens in over 170 countries, mostly the U.S., but lots in the U.K., Australia, and Canada as well, plus everywhere else, from Estonia to Morocco. So, yes, we are different. We work hard to get and keep listeners. I love what I do, and hopefully it shows. I'm asking you to make an exception for us and send your thanks and appreciation our way in the form of a $2.99 a month subscription. Yep, you get a bunch of neat stuff, but most of all, you're telling me thanks for what I do in providing you with these stories. Please see the show notes, get the app with all three shows, and subscribe. To all of you who are already with us, you have my boundless gratitude, and I'll do my best never to disappoint. Thank you. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. We'll be back soon.